look together in God's Word today once again to Genesis. If you're surprised that I say that, being the month of December, and you're thinking to yourself that we're drawing near to Christmas, and you know that often we will interrupt a series that I may be in and look at things more directly related to the Incarnation, you might wonder what place a study of one of the dark and difficult chapters of Scripture has in this time of Advent. There is a method to my madness, and uh, it's not madness, I hope. As we look at this today, only beginning to touch the first five verses of Genesis 3, the chief reason why I decided to stay with this series is so that, Lord willing, two weeks from today, the Sunday before Christmas, we will come to Genesis 3.15, which as you glance at it might not look all that special to you, but I would like to show you why it's the most wonderful place for us to be and consider in God's Word. The very first promise of Christ in all of the Bible will be what we consider, I hope, the Sunday before Christmas. Now let's look at Genesis 3, and I'm going to read the first five verses, and then I'm going to turn to Matthew and look at, uh, beginning at verse 17, just a couple of verses there. Listen to God's holy word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then a complete switch, but still related for sure. In Matthew 5, The words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. This is God's holy word. I read not very long ago that a funeral director who has overseen many funerals in a long career spoke about what he has seen a few times at least at funerals for persons who were adherents to no religion in particular, (coughs) people then for whom the funeral service is really what they call it in the newspaper today, a celebration of life, a highlight of, of that person's life, and that's about all that anyone could say because there is no eternal belief being pointed to. And this particular funeral director said that he had had over the years in that type of non-Christian or non-religious service, more than one request from the family that he would use the sound system, the 
ability of playing music within his funeral home to play the classic song of Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way. Now, you might find that a little hard to believe. Quite frankly, I think if that was played at a service I attended, I would get up and walk out. And yet, there is a sense in which, apart from the saving grace of God in Christ, that song, I Did It My Way, really should be the most suitable theme music for the funeral of any human being unless Jesus Christ is the one being exalted in that life. As we turn attention to Genesis 3, just as the closing line of chapter 2 left a sort of strange note dangling in the air that will be picked up in a little bit, chapter 3 opens with a strange line. It made me think of, you know, the great classic mystery novel, Snoopy in the Peanuts comic strip is always creating his novel on top of his doghouse, and you know the line, it was a dark and stormy night. Well, that's a little bit like the first line of Genesis 3. It's something a bit sinister or menacing as you read, now the serpent was more subtle or crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. You just know that this is leading into something disturbing and dark. Now, Genesis 3 has been called the most important chapter of the Bible. I suppose that could be debated. The Bible has a lot of important chapters, but it is vitally important because in it, we learn no less than the divine verdict and analysis of what is wrong with humanity. Here, our first parents, Adam and Eve, represent us in departing from the goodness and the blessing of God that had been heaped on their heads with things very good up to this point in time. And under the influence of a rather mysterious, smooth-talking creature, they choose contrary to God and His Word, and paradise tumbles into a downward spiral from this point on. This chapter is certainly a seed plot for the rest of the Bible. We find in the New Testament that Jesus himself or the Apostle Paul often look back at Genesis 3 with a very plain reference to what happened here and an assumption that this chapter is telling us of a real historic occurrence, not a legend, not a fable. Romans 5.12 says that sin entered the world through one man. And death came in through sin. And we should ask, why would the New Testament be concerned about the fall of man as told in Genesis 3 if all it was was a fable or a story? The rest of Scripture definitely regards Genesis 3 as a real, true, historic occasion that brings devastating consequences in its wake. I have only briefer time today because of our celebration of the Lord's Supper, but our theme here is to see how Satan's temptation set before Adam and Eve an attack upon the spoken trustworthiness of the Word of God. That is the point of the enemy's spear that was thrust at the first human beings and is thrust at every one of us 
ever since that time. They are challenged to ask themselves, can we really trust what God says? You should notice that the challenge is not, can you believe in the existence of God? Satan, who issues the challenge, believes very firmly in the existence of God. The challenge before us and before our first parents is and was, do you believe God when he speaks? Is our God trustworthy in what he reveals? Well, the first task we have to undertake here, and I hope it's one that gives this text a greater reality to you, is the task of identifying the tempter. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, you heard a very important background piece to this passage. I departed from the formal text of Genesis and went behind the scenes trying to lift the curtain a bit on a mysterious background issue of Scripture, what we call the mysterious origin of evil. And we looked at some very direct hints about this in two prophets, Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14. I can't begin to retrace all of that except to remind you of the strong suggestion that Scripture gives about Satan as a fallen angel who rebelled because he desired power and glory equal to that of God himself. And I did that, hopefully, so that you would understand Genesis 3.1 better. As we ask the question, what are we to make of the serpent described in this text? I'm sure you know that every child's Sunday school paper or curriculum book or Bible story book shows a depiction of Eve in the garden and next to her, coiled nicely in the tree with forked tongue coming out, is what? A snake. Now, these pictures, in my opinion, add to the fable-like quality that many people attribute to Genesis 3, and it's part of the reason why skeptics can easily dismiss it as if it was something absurd written for children. I am convinced that those pictures are absolutely and blatantly wrong. There is not a talking snake in Genesis 3. I don't care how many decades of your previous teaching I am denouncing. The serpent is a consistent Bible nickname for Satan or Lucifer. We looked last week in a little bit about his mysterious background. You could look forward in the Bible and go to places like Revelation 12.9 or Revelation 22. And you would find in Revelation 12, for example, the phrase, that ancient serpent called the devil who leads the world astray. There are a number of times that he is referred to that way. This fallen angel, this one who was close to God, it is implied, although the name Satan or Lucifer is not used in Genesis 3, I grant you, it is implied that he is the power behind the one called the serpent. Now you may ask, well, all right, I'm not against that, but isn't Satan here in the disguise of an animal? Isn't he using the form of an animal as his camouflage? And I would say to you that depends on how you read this. And I think that if you see a literal animal, you're reading it wrong. I'm not necessarily in the majority on this. There are commentators who disagree with me, but I believe 
what we have here in this phrase is this. We read, Satan is more crafty or more subtle than any of the wild animals God has made. And you're saying, well, doesn't that mean he was a wild animal, but he was just the most crafty? Well, think about it a minute. Can't you equally read that to say that Satan was more crafty than any of the wild animals means he was in a class apart. He was a created being indeed, but he was not merely a wild animal. He had characteristics and qualities and personality and guile that far surpassed that of any wild animal. Later on in Genesis 3.14, when God is pronouncing his curse, he addresses the serpent, and he gives us there the, the concept that makes us think of a snake in verse 14. When God says, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. In other words, once again, you're cursed in a different way, uniquely, beyond what any wild animal will be cursed. You will crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I once told a class of young boys, I got that verse across with them when I said, God told Satan, eat dirt. And they understood. That's what he told them in a graphic figure of speech. But I believe there is nothing in this text that says Eve was speaking to a talking snake. It was indeed a real encounter with a unique and cunning being. And there's another piece of evidence to pull into this case. And that is the fact that the Hebrew word for serpent, nakash, actually has the meaning of the shining one. Now, isn't that curious? Many people think of snakes as, as very repulsive. They want nothing to do with them. There, there's no, uh, you know, animal or lizard or anything that is more, you know, you want less contact with than a snake, for, at least for some people. Well, the shining one implies something winsome and attractive and even beautiful. Now, remember what we talked about last time. Satan as an angel was once glorious to behold. He was in the inner circle of power of the cherubim of God. Certainly, he is a skilled person, an intelligent person. And Ezekiel 28 says that he was the model of perfection and, in fact, perfect in beauty. And so, although the name Satan is not used here, this is definitely Satan at work. What did Eve literally see? I don't know. I suspect she saw an upright person on two legs who was attractive, who was convincing, and very intelligent. He's named, nicknamed Serpent for his craftiness. Moviegoers, I'll, I'll give you just a quick comparison to think about. There's a film that came out, I think it was five to eight years ago. It's a rather interesting film. Not a biblical film, but an interesting one to watch. It's called Meet Joe Black. And in this film, a young man comes to meet a billionaire, powerful man, very successful man, and reveals the fact that he is death. Death coming to claim this man and take him away from his very successful, powerful lifestyle. And I, I just am fascinated with the movie because they chose handsome young Brad Pitt to play the personification of death. Not some ugly, leering, you know, scowling person. Brad Pitt. 
Mr. Handsome was the grim reaper. And I really think there may be an analogy there for how you ought to think about the serpent, as he is called, in Genesis 3.1. All right, well, that's a little bit about who we're facing here. Now, secondly, the other point I want to put across today is to help you and, and see what we can put together in understanding this master lie that is at the root of all lies. I came to appreciate only, I think, when the television show Columbo was in its later stages, the, uh, this show, and I later watched a lot of reruns. Peter Falk, Columbo, remember that? Probably 20 years ago now. He was the detective who was sort of the antitype of detectives, you know. He wasn't the uh, impressive guy with a, you know, a nice suit who came in and, and sort of put, put forth his authority. He shambled into the room, and Peter Falk always wore this same trench coat that looked like it had been dragged out of a dumpster, and his hair was messed up. He was not smooth. He seemed like a bumbler. And he would ask awkward questions, and and people who were at the crime scene would listen to his questions and think, who is this guy? He certainly couldn't be important. He He seems like a fool. But then Columbo would be going out the door, and he'd profusely apologize for taking the person's time. But he would say, oh, just a minute, ma'am. Mrs. Jones, pardon me. I know I've prevailed on your time. But just one more second. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? And then it came. The zinger that usually went right to the heart of the crime and what Columbo had observed, which showed that he was more shrewd than anyone else in the room. Well, that's what you've got here. A question that shows you that the questioner is the most shrewd person on the scene. As the serpent asks the woman, Did God really say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? That was not what God said, and the serpent knew it wasn't what God said. He had given the man and woman broad permission to partake of anything but one. Here, enjoy this garden. Enjoy this world I've made. It's lush. It's full. It will please you. You will eat and be satisfied all your days. But this one line I draw in the sand to keep a separation between you and myself. And so even this first question of Satan was based on a lie, based on an insinuation of doubt about the trustworthiness of God. You know, all it takes is some small modification in even the order of God's words or the actual words themselves, and suddenly it's not God's word anymore. Well, Eve was somewhat on the defensive, but she responded correctly. Her first response was fairly good, and she said, no, you haven't, you haven't got it right. Here's what God actually said. Well, that was pretty good, but at least she'd been put in a defensive position. And then came the important thrust The sword thrust in verse 4 when the serpent said blatantly, You will not surely die. That's not what is going to happen. God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. It's pointed out that when Satan said, You will not die, 
And death, of course, was a judgment. You see what Satan was denying and subverting as the very first thing as he came against the Word of God? What was he denying? He was denying the possibility of God judging. And that's the first thing he wants to remove from our thinking. God's not going to be a judge. God's not going to bring death on you. Don't believe in that. That's the very first thing that is removed, you see, from most modern forms of Christianity. I know that you, many of you understand that what I'm saying is true. Go and listen for the message of judgment in many places where the Word of God is supposedly preached today. It's mysteriously absent. God doesn't judge people. He just loves people. Well, what's at stake here, you see, is not simply some attractive fruit on a particular tree. It's an assault on the integrity of the spoken Word of God. Can the righteous creator of the universe be trusted? Does the Most High God perhaps act and speak with motives that are jealous and narrow and restrictive and prohibitive that he really doesn't want what's good for us after all? You see, a lie creeps in when it's insinuated that God wants something less than our best or that he's holding back or that he's denying us justice or he wants to hurt us. And in response to that, of course, Eve is made to be confused and appear naive if she goes on implicitly trusting what God has said. Doubt has been planted by a smooth talker. And believe me, this smooth talker, even in a time of economic depression, could have found a job almost anywhere teaching Bible introduction at many evangelical colleges that I know about and could name. He spouts the theme of liberal Bible criticism. Eve, what you need to do is ask the hard questions. Eve, you need to embrace the paradox. Trust your doubts. And so the doubt is planted like a little seed that begins to grow. The serpent was actually lying when he told the woman, you will become like God. Why do I say he's lying? Because they were like God. Adam and Eve already were more like God than any other created beings. They had his image on them, his rational mind, his soul to be able to communicate with him and understand him and seek him. And the truth is, 180 degrees opposite. They didn't become more like God by disobeying. They became more like the serpent. They became serpent-like, thinking deviously, thinking in denial of the things of God. They already knew what good was. They didn't have to be taught that. God had only shown them good up to this moment. What they started to know now was evil. And the dark shadow of evil that fell over all their sight of beauty and truth and physical enjoyment and sexuality and and everything began to darken and ruin their vision of God and his creation. You see, only God can be God. It's logically absurd to think that we can be God. And yet that's the temptation that sin plants before us. Only God can be omnipotent, omnipresent, sovereign, infinite. He had forbade access to one tree for a reason that was not bad, as Satan implied. It was a good reason. It was simply a way of humanity using their freedom 
to obey him and to continue to live before him dependently and with praise in their hearts. That was for their good. But sin is born in a lie. And it teaches us to believe that we can be autonomous. You know what the word autonomous means? You learn to break these things down. Auto means basically self. An automobile is something that moves by itself. Autonomous, auto, self, nomos is law. An autonomous person is a law unto themselves. And the endeavor to grasp likeness to God is nothing less than an assertion of human autonomy. That's where sin starts. I don't have to bow to anyone else's standard. Oh, I know what God's Word says, but, you know, the Bible, you've got to interpret that with a grain of salt. You have to kind of shade the thing down to live in the real world. Yes, I know God said don't steal, but he didn't understand the pressures and the needs of 21st century life. I'll do it my way. And even in the smallest momentary sin, what I'm doing is declaring my independence from the Most High. I'm saying I am autonomous. I will be the sovereign. I will decide what works here. That is the deadly battle that goes on inside every man and woman and boy and girl as we disregard, rewrite, trample on what God has revealed, and we say, oh, yes, Lord, I know you told me not to steal. Well, you know I never go out and rob anybody. I never take a gun and hold up the bank. But I actually prefer in this moment to inflate that tax deduction on my income tax report. Yes, Lord, I know your word says sexual intimacy belongs in marriage, but God, you don't know what a special relationship the two of us have, and we're going to get married soon. I'll do it my way. And autonomy is taking hold of the lie of this serpent who said God's word doesn't really mean what you think it meant. Now, we're going to come back and study Genesis 3 more next time. That's really all we have time for today. But the great lesson I want you to apply this morning is to see that the constant root of human sin is denial of the revelation of God. Sin that begins in this manner is truly and totally catastrophic and far-reaching because it puts a breach. You know, it's it's like splitting a log. You know, you get a crack and you insert a steel wedge and then you drive the wedge. That's what happened here. A wedge was driven in in the trust and integrity of the relationship man had with God. And now we deny his word one way, and we'll start denying it every other way that we can think of. And we think what we're doing, and what the serpent tells us we're doing is being liberated. Well, this kind of liberation actually puts us in shackles. We make chains for ourselves in seeking our own autonomy. Is there any hope at all? Ladies and gentlemen, there is a great hope in the work of Jesus Christ. Because let me remind you for just a moment that Jesus was tempted in the opening of his ministry in a lesson told in the beginning of three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by this same serpent, and the Garden of Eden was reenacted. Three times the serpent tried his best with Jesus. And when he did, 
Jesus responded to the lies and the temptation when Satan said, if you are really the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. You're starving. What would be the harm? Use your miraculous power here. And Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The unique Son of God and Son of Man kept the Word of God intact 100% where we failed. And in Matthew 5.18, after that temptation and test in the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, until heaven and earth should disappear. Not the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen, will disappear from God's law until everything of it is accomplished. In other words, the mission of Christ on earth was to undo Genesis 3 and keep the Word of God, revere the Word of God, and fulfill the Word of God so that Jesus, in the weakness of his humanity, would triumph where Adam and Eve failed. By the way, it's no accident that he's called the second Adam. And just as they dragged, Adam and Eve dragged us down with them into the necessity of sin in our lives, Jesus died on Calvary and rose from the grave to lift every believer back into a position in Eden again. Back to the throne of God. Back to a privileged place of forgiveness and communion and relationship and belonging. Back to his side once more. Thanks be to God for the powerful work of the gospel of grace completed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we think on these things, We see the completeness of your word. It's not a book of rules. It's not a science textbook. It's not a law book. It's not a collection of fables. It's your powerful revelation of things as they are. Thank you for Jesus who fulfilled it when we broke it. And as we continue breaking it and shading it and cutting it and whittling it, We pray in the powerful name of Jesus that you forgive us and restore us to love your word once more and to worship your holy name. Amen.